before we hear from the Lord and from his word. <clears throat> Let's go to him once more in prayer. Uh, join me in prayer. Dear Lord, our Heavenly Father, we come again before you, confessing from our hearts, Lord, what a privilege we have in being in your presence this morning. And we pray, dear Lord, as we are here, that you would give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, open our hearts, Lord, to receive from you. We pray, Lord, to rest our attentions, remove all those distractions that swirl around in our minds, all the things of the world, all the affairs of our life. Lord, we pray, arrest our attention. Help us to hear and to receive your word now. Help us to bend our lives and our wills towards you. We pray, Lord, that the instrument of your word this morning and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> A number of passages this morning having to do with our topic uh, this morning. First, I'd like you to turn to uh, John chapter 10. John, the, gos- the Gospel of John chapter 10. We'll read from chapter 10. John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. You give your full attention. This is the word of our God. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then turn over, if you would, to the epistle of Peter, 1 Peter, 1 chapter, two verses from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. I'll start in verse 3, verses 3 to 5 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And then finally turn back to Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1 verses 13 and 14. <clears throat> Ephesians 1, verse 13. In him, that is Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So far the reading... God's word, <clears throat> may add his blessing to it. <clears throat> Lord, me. Well, last week I confessed to you uh, my ignorance regarding horticulture and things having to do with flowers and gardening. This morning I have another confession. 
um, uh, of my ignorance uh, this morning that is having to do with canning and preparing jars of fruit to keep them from spoiling. Uh, They're called preserves, right? They're called preserves because they have been preserved from going bad or then preserved to stay fresh and edible. And I can't help when I think of this idea of canning and preserving these uh, goods, I can't help but see the connection to what we just read in Ephesians, to the believer, where the Christian is sealed with the Holy Spirit. Uh, and even in 1 Peter, our, verse, our, uh, our reading, he is sealed, he is kept, he is preserved. And that's a beautiful imagery, right, as we think about it. Uh, this beautiful imagery, that old way of preserving fruit. Uh, because of my ignorance, I had to uh, ask about this to Mrs. Garbarino yesterday. And she reminded me that our grandmothers would pour wax onto the top uh, and seal the fruit to preserve it. Well, we come this morning to the fifth and final petal of the flower of grace that we've been looking at. And the pea, right, we come to the pea at the end of that flower, the tulip. And it is the perseverance of the saints. Um, There are many who have commented on this uh, doctrine of the perseverance of the saints that it would be better to refer to it as the preservation of the saints. The preservation of the saints. And why is that? It's because they want to emphasize the active party. Right? Preservation better amplifies the key active party in what we are talking about. Preservation better expresses that it is the saints that are preserved unto glory. God is the one who does the preserving. Perseverance, you see, can lead some to think that it is the saints, the believers themselves, who are preserving themselves. But nevertheless, if we keep this distinction in mind, uh, that the saints are persevering. Why? Because the God of grace, right? The grace of God is operational in his or her life. That is why they are persevering. That is why they are preserved. If we keep that in mind, the old language, uh, the standard understanding of this is acceptable. The perseverance of the saints, the end of this look at the doctrines of grace, the tulip, our beautiful flower, uh, the tulip. Uh, we have seen that this summary of God's way of salvation brings into crystal clarity the sovereign grace of God, the sovereign grace of our sovereign Lord. And these doctrines, doctrines of grace, they teach us how God works in our lives to bring us to Christ and to carry us throughout our lives to the end point of that pilgrimage, the termination of that heaven itself. God begins and God ends this process in this final point of our journey, the P, the perseverance of the saints, um, is what we're looking at this morning. This, of course, is the teaching from God's word uh, that we saw very succinctly and clearly in the New Testament reading this morning that Elder Mitchell uh, spoke, uh, read, read to us from Philippians, right? Philippians chapter 1, one of the chair passages, the key passages that tell us this very thing. Where Paul said, I am sure and confident Right? I'm sure or I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Right? Paul is confident. He is sure that what God began in their lives, the lives of the Philippians, from that moment that they believed, that they received the gospel in faith and repented, Paul says God would perfect it 
He would bring it to completion, bring it to its mature endpoint. And this was a maturing process that ran from from conversion all the way to consummation, over which God and his grace would see through to completion. Uh, Paul said that this was begun by God in them. Of course, last week, we learned what that beginning was. It was irresistible grace. It was the work that was begun in them was the work of the Holy Spirit. Grace, that irresistible grace, that efficacious calling to the elect. And the, the Christian life has a very definitive beginning point. And that beginning point is the new birth. It's the birth which is from above. But the Holy Spirit makes alive the soul of man. We read passages like Ezekiel 36 and John chapter 3. They spoke of this very thing. Remember, we read those passages. And they speak of uh, God taking out the heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh, which is alive in Jesus, which beats for Christ. The person who has been born again or born from above has entered into new life, right? Inwardly, the life that expresses itself in faith and repentance and new obedience. This heart transformation, this new life, Paul confidently declares about it, that God will continue to mature it and to perfect it until the end when Christ himself ushers in the new heavens and the new earth in that final consummate day of the Lord. And the maintaining of the work And the maturing of the work until the end is the grace of God in the perseverance of his people, the perseverance of the saints. And the idea that a person can be born again of the Spirit of God and yet somehow fail to continue in the Christian life, fall short of heaven, is an idea that is completely disallowed when we look at verses like this. For the one in whom God began a good work God will confidently bring them to completion in that last day. Is that a reason for thanks and praise? Absolutely it is. Absolutely. So let's look down more closely at this, uh, this, this idea, this perseverance of the saints, these truths about the perseverance of the saints, and we'll look at three things <clears throat> about this doctrine. First, we'll see that perseverance is made certain by God. Perseverance is made certain by God. And there's an outline in your bulletin. I think my bulletin has the numbers reversed, but disregard the numbers. The first thing is that perseverance is made certain by God. The second thing is that perseverance is made clear through faith. I'm sorry, through holiness and love. It is made clear through holiness and love. And then thirdly, perseverance makes confident in faith. Makes confident in faith. But first point one, perseverance is made certain by God. We read in Romans 8, and you may wish to go there at this time, Romans 8. Romans chapter 8, verse uh, 28. Uh, Last week, recall, we remember that uh, we read that in that verse, that text, um, that those whom God has chosen, he will indeed uh, bring them, persevere them in the faith. Romans eight twenty eight. Uh, we see that uh, verse twenty identifies those who love God. It says that are called according to His purpose, right? And then the next verse twenty nine explains that those who were called, God, what He foreknew, 
And he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Right? And we know that for those whom, who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. In order that they might be the firstborn among many brothers. Right? So no stronger language can be used here, could possibly be used to drive home this reality, this point that the elect will inevitably be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, that they are predestined to be so. And then in verse 30, we see again the certainty of that outcome when Paul uses a collection of highly charged words. Right, This grouping in verse 30, uh, this grouping or chain of words is unbreakable and it magnifies the grace of God. Right? This, as most of you probably well know, has been referred to as the golden chain of salvation. The golden chain of salvation. And they are steps in the conforming of the elect to the image of Christ. Right? Notice again the progress of what we see here in Romans. Those whom he predestined, that is the elect, uh, he also called. And of course this is the effectual calling through the gospel as it goes out. And what is the result? If we go on in verse 30, those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Right? You see that from calling to consummation. Paul even uses the expression, he uses the past tense, speaking of the certainty of what will come to pass. It is God who called, therefore, they will be glorified. We don't see any hint of the called, believing, and then falling away. That is utterly foreign to the text. Here. And every single word emphasizes that God efficaciously does with the elect uh, what he does from eternity past, through time, and into eternity future in order to save a people in all what? All to the praise of his glorious grace. Uh, they are saved by grace, and so they will make it to the goal of total conformity to Christ in eternity. And why is that? Again, it's because they are carried along through the Christian life for all of their life by the same sovereign grace that began the whole process before the creation of the world. It is a single chain of grace. It is an unbreakable chain of grace. It is a powerful grouping. It is a powerful chain. It's a chain that cannot be broken. There are no weak links in this chain because it's God is the one who is doing it. Uh, and that being the case, for anyone to entertain or to toy with the idea that those who have been called, truly called and truly believed, truly been given a new heart that beats for Christ, any idea or hint of, that, of them falling away to destruction later is to damage the simple and clear reading of the testimony of this text and the rest of God's word. The called falling away must be rejected. Those who truly have salvation will never lose that lose that salvation that is unscriptural and jesus emphasized this uh, these same truths um, if you turn to john chapter 6 we see similarly something similar <clears throat> from the words of our savior himself yes john 6 starting at verse 38 which reads this for i have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but what? But the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. What is it? Verse 39. 
that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but what? But raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus said that he came from heaven to do the will of the Father. And the Holy Spirit spoke of this in other places in the Bible as well. Uh, Dr. Mitchell's been going through Hebrews, and this is wonderfully emphasized in the book of Hebrews. It's very clear. According to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 9, doing the Father's will by Christ is what? It is accomplished, it is accomplishing rather, the terms of the new covenant by offering himself as a sacrifice for sinners. That was, that was the Father's will, and that's what he accomplished. It says there in Hebrews, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second, that is, covenant. And by that will, we have, seen, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. It's once and for all because it was efficacious. It did what it intended to do. It does not need to be done again and again. We've been sanctified, it says there in verse 10, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Here, of course, Jesus emphasizes uh, in John that the will of the Father is that Christ does not lose any of those whom the Father has given him. Naturally, we know that Christ does not lose any because he died for them. He secured the terms of the covenant in his blood in their behalf. This is manifestly clear as we, uh, that's why we read the verses. That's why I read the verses I did uh, at the beginning of this um, message. From John 10, from 1 Peter 1, from Ephesians 1. And if we look back at John 6, where we are now, and we read there of another golden chain, right? This time from the lips of Christ himself. The Father's will from eternity past, which sent Christ to save the elect, it is fleshed out in time by them believing in him. And in that they possess eternal life. And Christ will indeed Assuredly, without fail, raise them on the last day, which will be the inauguration of eternity future. And again, we're face to face with the sovereign grace of our sovereign God. The sovereign grace of God in saving sinners. Christ, it says there in John, will lose none of those given him by the Father. He will lose none of them. They believe, resulting in eternal life. And that life presses forth, it is preserved. It perseveres until the last day. Any idea of having saving faith for a time and then falling away to destruction, again, it does violence to these texts. It does violence to these golden chains as we see, <clears throat> as we saw in, uh, from Paul's uh, epistle to Romans. It would do violence to the same in John chapter 6 here. For the one having saving faith, he will never fall away. He is secured. He is sealed. And I pray for you this morning, brothers and sisters, as you sit here this morning, I pray that it describes you. I pray that you have responded in faith to the call of the gospel to repent and believe in Jesus, to place your faith in Christ. If you have not, that is still his call to you. Even right now, repent and believe in Christ. Trust in Him. 
believe him, trust in him, that he has fulfilled the demands of the law perfectly, that he has underwent the punishment you deserve, did it in your place, receive him, rest in him. But some have asked in regards to this doctrine, the, the, uh, the opposers, the opposition raises up and says, does that mean once saved, always saved? Does that mean that we can live any kind of life that we desire? We can live fleshly, carnal lives and still make it safely to heaven, to the eternal favor of our God? Have you heard this? You probably, possibly, perhaps, you've heard this kind of opposition. And the answer to that question must be what? An emphatic no, that is not what we mean. And this leads to the second point this morning. And that is that perseverance is made clear through holiness and love. Perseverance is made clear through holiness and love. The holiness and love of the believer becomes clear. It is made concrete. It is made clear through the lives of the saints, through the love of the saints, through the love of the elect. The certainty of the elect's eternal salvation does not allow us to conclude that human responsibility has been negated or done away with, and that we need to do nothing, therefore. We are saved unto what Ephesians uh, 1 told us? We saved unto good works. Right? They flow from new birth. God's grace is not merely a decision. His grace is not merely a disposition towards sinners. God's grace is also a dynamic in their lives. Right, do you see that? <clears throat> I hope you do. Right? God, the grace of God is a decision to save people apart from what? From any foreseen responsibility, their response, I'm sorry, or ability in them. God's grace is a disposition of God, of, for, of forgiveness and justification apart from any merit in the sin, sinner. But God's grace is also a dynamic. It is a dynamic which motivates, which empowers and carries through to completion the reality of Christ in the lives of his people. We must indeed keep in mind that though God's grace undergirds all that is accomplished in our lives, we really and genuinely do things that God requires of us. We are free from our sin and from the guilt and from the bondage of those things. We're also free to what? We're free to obey from hearts of love and gratitude. Notice how the Apostle Paul, he links these two things together, God's grace and human activity uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. 1 Corinthians 15, 10, we see these two things. It says this, by, but, by God's, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though not I, he says, but the grace of God that is within me. And so these two things are so interlaced and intermingled. They flow, they flow from the heart of the one who's been given new life. And even though Paul makes it perfectly clear that it is he who is laboring, yet it is ultimately the operation of God's grace in his life. Grace is the dynamic at work in Paul. Is that the dynamic power of God's grace? Is it at work in your lives, brothers and sisters? Do you find yourself seeking to please Jesus day by day out of gratitude for his marvelous grace to you? For the Father's unconditional election and the Son's substitutionary suffering 
and the Spirit's grace in transforming your heart to long for fellowship with God. Is that you, brothers and sisters? Is that true of you? Jesus said in John chapter 8, If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you shall know the truth. And the truth shall what? The truth shall set you free. Jesus had many disciples who eventually walked away from following him. Remember in chapter 6. But the true disciples, those who had been really transformed by the Spirit and the word of truth, were characterized by what? By abiding in his word. Abiding in the word of Christ. By doing so, they would consequently be free. They would be free. Jesus explains this is freedom from sin. Freedom from sin. The real disciples of Christ continue to an ongoing relationship with the word of God. That relationship was called abiding. Abiding in the word. And so to abide in the word is to make the word your mental and your moral environment. The environment out of which you conduct all of the affairs of your life. To abide in the word means to read it, to study it in private, with your family, here at church, with your friends. And of course to hear it as well in church for your own edification in Christ. To abide in the word of God means to remain in it, to continue in it. Jesus sets this abiding in his word in opposition to the many who walked away from him. Right? They followed him for a little while, but later they fell away. Jesus made one thing very clear. To abide in the word frees from sin. Right? It's like, think of your own bodies. Right? You take a shower every day. It keeps the body clean. To ignore that will result in abiding in dirtiness, right? Paul understood this life-changing power, this life-cleansing power of the Word. And so he commands in Romans 12, he says, Be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's the same idea expressed in Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1, we read something similar. Right, it speaks there. It speaks there of the one who refuses the wicked. Right, he refuses the wicked. Right, he refuses the unbiblical counsel so as to meditate upon and walk in the law of the Lord. Such a one is like a tree whose roots go down, down deep, and they draw life from the waters of the word to create stability, even through drought. And to steadily bring forth fruit, which is the fruit of the, the blossoming of the godly life, free from sin. So whether we read of Jesus, his words, or Paul's uh, writings, or the psalmist's the psalmist reflection, the message is the same. The true saints, the true disciple of Christ, continues to abide in the word of God, in the various relationships of his life. Whether it's personal, familially, or at church. And they do so as to believe that word and to walk in a way of holiness, ever growing freer from sin. And so we will either abide in the word and fall away from sin, or we will abide in sin and fall away from the word. 
Our former pastor was fond of quoting uh, one of his mentors that said, this book will keep you from sinning. And sinning will keep you from this book. And that is the case. Right? I think it was John Owen that said, you must be putting sin to death in your life. To abide in the word, this is the pathway of true discipleship. The true disciples, and it's the perseverance of the saints, abiding in his word. Well, if that's true, that the saints do indeed persevere unto holiness by abiding in the word through faith and obedience. What about the passages that warn us about falling away? Those are in the Bible. There are many passages that talk about this. If the elect will persevere unto salvation of their souls, why does Scripture warn us against falling away unto damnation? Why are those in there? And that question begins, uh, I'm sorry, brings us to the third point in our sermon this morning. The third point in the sermon. <clears throat> Perseverance makes confident in faith. Perseverance makes confident in faith. Right? The simple fact is this. Right? It's not easy to distinguish the difference at times between professors of the faith and possessors of the faith. Right? Sometimes it's hard to distinguish. Very often it's impossible from outward appearances to distinguish between those. Uh, uh, Because true uh, possessors of the faith and the mere professors are very similar. Because the factors which actually distinguish those two are the invisible operations in the heart, right? Of the spirit on the heart. And they can very much appear alike. They both participate in the common practice of the Christian faith and the operations of the visible church. Even some operations of the Holy Spirit are common to both. In this closeness, right, this closeness outwardly between the elect and the non-elect, right, the possessors and the professors, within the boundary of the covenant community, it mandates what? Because this is a reality, we must preach and we must warn the visible church. We address the whole body of professing the professing church as a unit. And we warn with the epistle to the Hebrews, right, which says in chapter 3, it says, take care, brothers. It's a letter to the church. Take care, he even says, brothers, lest there should be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed, right, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end right? so the author of the Hebrews the book of the Hebrews there says that uh, the, the, he says this to the whole congregation the warning is addressed to all of them as brothers even though some would prove to be unregenerate and mere uh, pro- professors of the faith most would prove themselves to be partakers of Christ right? that's the, what he refers to them as but only right it said if if they continue to hold fast from the beginning to the very end. Right? Only time will tell. Right? They had made a beginning, but only those who hold fast to the end have truly become partakers of Christ in the truest sense of the word. This perspective of looking at the whole body right, as a covenant community 
over which flies that banner of the Lord's name. Yet it's a body, right? They used to refer to it as a, a mixed body, a corpus um, that is mixed. A body which in some, some will fall away from that body. Some will fall away from Christ. It's reflected repeatedly through the book of Hebrews. There's lots of warning in reference to, like the Israelites of old who went through the desert, they did not mix what they saw with faith. Many instances, the single factor that will distinguish between these two mere professors from true possessors has to do with time. Right? Time will tell. It's a phrase that we've all used. When you don't know for sure the character of someone, the true character, we find it hard to predict the result of their de- declared intentions. We sometimes say, only time will tell. I remember when I played sports when I was younger, this was the case. Some people would come and begin the year with the best intentions and excitement and vigor. When they were new, all we could do was to assess whether they would persevere, whether they had the stamina and the heart, whatever factors that were needed to continue on in that sport. All we could do was say, well, only time will tell. Time alone will tell if they they had the endurance and the spirit and the talent or the grit to continue on and to play and succeed or if they would give up when they got dirty or when they got bruised and they would quit how would we know only time will reveal this only time will tell only time would tell if they would fall back and stop pressing forward or if they would rely on others and leave their teammates in bad situations would they do that or would they persevere Only time would tell. Time would tell because time is the litmus test of a person's true colors. We cannot see a person's character or their heart. That's the same today with you and I and all in the church. We can't see the heart. God sees the heart. But time will tell. Reveal true possessors of the faith or mere professors. But in the meantime, in the, the between time that we're living in, the true church, the body of Christ, the Bible-believing church is faced with an urgent matter of warning those in the name, who name the name of Christ, warning them to press on to salvation of their souls in a full assurance of faith. Because time will indeed become the sorting gauge that separates the unregenerate from the elect. The epistle of 1 John is full of this kind of thing. That's where we see in that familiar passage in 1 John 2.19, a time came when what? When some left. And that defined for all who they were in reality. Right? Remember what the apostle says. They went out from us. They were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would, they would have continued with us. Time would have borne that out. He says, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us, that they all... Uh, become plain that that they all are not of us, right? Time prohibits us from looking at all the facets that we could look at in this regard, all the scenarios that we could regarding these things. We don't have time to exhaust that this morning. But there are those who are self-deceived. We have to acknowledge this. And self-deluded about their true scriptural position, the condition of their hearts. We are called, all of us, brothers and sisters, to examine our faith to test it, to be diligent in doing so. 
2 Corinthians 13, 5 speaks of this. 2 Peter 1, 10 speak of these things. And as I said, the whole book of 1 John was written as a test to, us, to be self-administered, to determine these things, to determine the truth about your spiritual condition. 1 John, you could say, is a spiritual stethoscope for us to listen to vital signs of eternal life within our own heart so that we're not self-deluded or self-deceived. And it leads us to ask questions, healthy questions, like, do I admit my sins? Do I keep God's commandments? Do I love the brethren? Do I love God's people? Is the Spirit teaching me? Or do I entertain strange, false teachings in the rejection in, 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 in ignoring the truth? Do I reject heresy? This is a sample of some of the things that we see, some of the probing thoughts in the epistle of 1 John. And, and remember too, brothers and sisters, this is not, it is never just abstract theology for us. It's never just abstract theology. It is our very life. It is vital. We should never have, we should never entertain an indifferent attitude about the truths of God's word or the impact of it on our lives. It should never be said of any of us that we're accustomed, we're familiar to the concepts and mechanics of Christianity, but we're a stranger to its founder. It's very easy to grow up knowing the church of Christ and yet be a stranger to the Christ of the church. Don't let it be said of you, brothers and sisters. Don't let it be said that you knew the pastor, but you never came to a genuine knowledge of the Christ about which the pastor speaks. God has all of these things. He's given all of these warnings to deliver us from being self-deceived, from being self-deluded, and thinking that we're saved, and yet in reality being lost. Indeed, time will reveal the true colors of some false professor's spiritual status. But others will indeed, will indeed be awakened to their, 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 their sleeping spiritual condition through this examination. All of us, dear Christian, all of us must be, uh, to quote scripture, diligent to make his calling and election sure. And so let me leave you as we conclude Three questions for self-examination. Three questions to meditate upon, to think in the quietness of your own, uh, in your own heart. Questions to ask before the Lord of glory, whom you seek with all of your hearts. First question is this. Do I, to the best of my knowledge, do I turn from my sins to entrust myself wholly to Jesus Christ to save me on the grounds of his redemptive work? Right? That's the, question, the first question. Do I turn from my sins and trust myself upon Jesus to save me based on his work alone as he's offered in the gospel? Do you? That's the question. Do you? You turn from sin. You entrust yourself on Christ. And then the second question. Do my claims of faith in Christ reflect themselves in a lively, abiding in the word of God, in turning from sin and walking in obedience, resulting in a growing character, Christ-like character, as we see in God's word. That's the second question. Is my profession of faith 
Does it show itself in abiding in God's word, turning from sin, walking in obedience, resulting in a change of character, a character that looks more and more like Jesus? There's a number of verses you can look at to meditate upon as well. I'll give them to you. You can see what our character should look like. Matthew 5, verses 1 to 12. 1 Corinthians 13. You're familiar with these, these passages. They challenge you to not know them so well that they become meaningless to you. Right, the Sermon on the Mount, the, the chapter on love, right, 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, Galatians 5, verses 22 to 23. Fruit of the Spirit. Then 2 Peter 1, verses 1 to 11. A rich passage, First, uh, 2 Peter 1, 1 to 11, and then all of 1 John, all of the epistle of 1 John. If you want to meditate upon uh, this, this, this inquiry into your heart and your life, these passages, meditate upon them. And then thirdly, the third question, does the Holy Spirit bear witness with my spirit that I am a child of God? Does the Spirit bear witness within me to my spirit? That I am his child, right? As it says in Romans 8:16. Does the Spirit bear witness to me that I belong to Jesus? These are serious questions. Serious questions for meditation. And they can either give you a cause for great praise and thanksgiving or the searching of your soul. And please hear me now here, brothers and sisters. Listen to what I'm saying. Don't just blow these off. Don't just blow these questions off. There's some kind of hyper-morbid introspectionalism. That's not what I'm giving them to you for. When these are carefully considered, they can be a source to awaken you to a false security. They can be a source to stimulate, to stir yourself up and lay hold of Christ in a serious manner, perhaps even for the first time. Lay hold of Jesus. These questions can help to clarify your faith. And to bring you to a greater sense of peace and the joy of assurance of faith. And the confidence they can give you. The confidence that, as Paul said in Philippians, he who began a good work in me will perfect it until the day of Jesus. And so to conclude, we've seen here that God's grace takes a totally depraved sinner Right, the T, a totally depraved sinner, takes him by electing him from eternity past, removing the guilt and power of his sins in the death of Christ, and quickening him, making him alive with the life of the Spirit, and therefore transforming him into a holy, persevering child of God, a saint, a holy one, headed for the perfections of eternal glory. That is a glorious journey dear christian his salvation is of grace grounded in eternity and secured in the redemption of jesus christ and his perseverance in holiness and love all throughout this life concluding in eternal glory is equally guaranteed by grace yet grace does not remove the human responses of faith right faith and uh, repentance and faith or striving against sin, which we all should be doing, and towards good deeds of love, in grateful obedience to God. Rather, grace is the dynamic that undergirds all of that. 
And so all of us must solemnly consider our spiritual status and not simply shrug our shoulders and ascribe all things to God's sovereignty. Right? We're not lazy fatalists. May it never be said of us that we are lazy fatalists just because we believe in the doctrines of grace. We are not indifferent to an impersonal, detached mechanism. We must examine ourselves to be sure that we are in the faith. We must pick up the spiritual stethoscope and listen to see if our heart is beating to the rhythm of a new song. Right? A new song. Sung only by those redeemed in the blood and seated in the heavenly choir of the Lamb. Is that you? Is that true of you? And lo and behold, our personal, dear and precious Savior, who loved us and gave himself, gave his all for us, he does what he promises. He does what he promises. Praise God. The Spirit does indeed, for those who belong to him and are living by the power and presence of that self-same Spirit, he gives them that which they seek, the precious assurance of their faith. Assurance that they belong to another. They are not their own. They belong to Jesus who gave his life for them. Who bought them with the costly price of his own blood. And he ever lives to make intercession for them. Isn't that a wonderful thing, dear Christian? Isn't that a wonderful thing? Isn't ours a wonderful God? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. May we ever praise him. This one who will gloriously and powerfully preserve us to that very last day and into eternity with him. Amen.